Peking, the capital of our flourishing socialist motherland, has put on its golden autumn attire. The people of Peking prepare to welcome the distinguished Australian guests from the South Pacific. It is almost exactly 50 years since the first visit to China by an Australian Prime Minister. Gough Whitlam, the Labour Party leader whose election in 1972 had ended 23 years of unbroken Conservative government in Australia, had long been keen that Australia should recognise the People's Republic, which much of the democratic world was still regarding at barge pole length. Indeed, audaciously, some said treacherously, Whitlam had already been to China back in 1971 while still leader of the opposition and had been received by Premier Zhao Enlai. The pair had engaged in a respectful impromptu debate before astonished journalists in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. It was a sensation. Few countries had been more suspicious of China than Australia recently exceedingly twitchy about communism and long paranoid about the mighty Asian nations to its north. For both reasons, Australia was, at the time, at war in Vietnam. Whitlam was ahead of his time in many respects. That pioneering 1971 visit predated by mere days the United States announcement that after an amount of furtive finagling by US National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, President Richard M. Nixon would call on Chairman Mao Zedong in Beijing the following year. I think from Australia's point of view, the great significance of our delegation to China has been that the Australian people were caught less by surprise when President Nixon also decided to go to China than they would otherwise have been. The Australian people have had more information on China in the last month than they'd had for more than 20 years. This week, another Australian Labour Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been received in Beijing. President Xi Jinping of China had clearly done his homework. His welcoming remarks paid generous homage to Gough Whitlam. In China, said Xi, we often say when drinking water, we should not forget those who dug the well. The Chinese people will not forget Prime Minister Whitlam for digging the well for us. However... If we're going to run with Xi's metaphor, the mighty aquifer towards which Whitlam sank that first prospective bore has not always been a font of fresh, invigorating bounty. In recent years especially, seeking to sup from Whitlam's well has been more of an exercise in dredging up fetid sludge. China's paramount leader has set down the direction he wants to follow. During their meeting last night, President Xi Jinping gave his blessing to friendlier ties. The China-Australia relationship has embarked on a right path of improvement and development. I'm heartened to see that. Albanese, in his own introductory address, deployed the splendid diplomatic circumlocution. I believe that we can all benefit from the greater understanding that comes from high-level dialogue and people-to-people links. Xi will have understood that this translates broadly as, I know you didn't get on with the previous clown, but throw me a bone here. The relationship since the exchange of ambassadors in 1973 has not always run smoothly. This is only to be expected. Australia and China are two very different places. Australia is a democracy, China is not. 
Australia is a solid pillar of Western alliances. China is at least part of the reason that some of those Western alliances exist. Australia and China do have geographic heft in common, but Australia spreads fewer people across its vast space than presently live in Greater Shanghai. It has really only been in recent decades that China has come to dominate Australian foreign policy thinking. As recently as the early 1980s, two-way trade between the two countries was worth less than 100 million Australian dollars annually. As recently as the late 1980s, another Australian Labour Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, felt able to unequivocally damn China for its massacre of the students occupying Tiananmen Square. Young people confronting lines of armed troops, not in anger, but in disbelief that an army could unleash force on its own people with such cruelty. Thousands have been killed and injured, victims of a leadership that seems determined to hang on to the reins of power at any cost. At awful human cost. Hawke made a spontaneous offer of asylum to any Chinese students who were in Australia at the time. 42,000 took him up on the offer. Two-way trade between Australia and China is now worth north of 100 billion Australian dollars annually. Australia's challenge this century has been balancing these colossal economic opportunities against the security challenges China poses to the Asia-Pacific. A full-fledged rebirth of the relationship seemed on the cards in 2007 when Australia elected a Labour government led by Kevin Rudd, a former diplomat and ardent Sinophile who had served at Australia's embassy in Beijing and spoke the language. We will not at this time be rising above, dropping the fact that Rudd, now Australia's ambassador to the United States, has been a repeat guest on the Foreign Desk. We'd especially recommend episode 439, in which he outlines some ideas for averting conflict between the US and China. I think the key thing we can do for this decade ahead, when there are so many things which could trigger crisis, escalation, conflict and war, is to devise mechanisms which provide a mutually agreed framework for managed strategic competition so that you don't eliminate the risk of war, but you reduce that risk at least by the poor management of a crisis should it arise. It looked under Rudd's leadership like some kind of balance had been found. China's bottomless appetite for Australian resources helped Australia barely notice the global financial meltdown of 2008. The harmony even appeared to survive a change of government. A free trade agreement was finalised in 2014 under the Conservative Prime Ministership of Tony Abbott and Xi Jinping addressed a joint sitting of Australia's Parliament the same year. Under Albanese's immediate predecessor Scott Morrison, however, relations soured dramatically. A falsified image of an Australian soldier threatening a young child with a knife, a post made on an official Chinese government Twitter account, is truly repugnant. Tempting and amusing, though it always is, to blame Morrison for stuff, this was not exclusively his fault. 
Morrison's term coincided with escalating Chinese bellicosity generally and with a pandemic originating in China about which Morrison reasonably suggested China was being other than transparent. China retaliated with assorted trade-related punishments, including a 218% tariff on Australian wine, of which many Chinese consumers had grown correctly fond. As of this broadcast, Albanese's visit seems to have gone well-ish. People were saying that uh, we have a handsome boy coming from Australia. Anthony Albanese wasn't quite sure what to make of being called a handsome boy, but for all the flattery, he still used the opportunity to press for the removal of remaining trade sanctions and urged China to maintain a peaceful approach to the region. Where countries respect sovereignty and meet their obligations under international law and conventions. He did not secure the release of Australian writer Yang Hengjun, now detained five years in China on opaque charges, or, just yet, any relief for Australian winemakers. But a desire for some sort of rapprochement does seem sincere in both directions, at least until the next big row, which on form shouldn't be too far off. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller.